What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, the GES edition, Tom Fox and Jay Rosen take a look at the following stories. Credit Suisse feels the pain of poor risk management. Jason Meyer sees a win for compliance and ethics. Is a Sox whistleblower required to prove fraud? Karen Woody is named a Herndon Fellow. Accountability, it's all of us. Is it time for a national privacy law? Is what you need Goldilocks compliance? Are you ready to move into compliance or risk management? And ask some of these questions first. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 247 for the week ending, April 9, 2001, the GES edition. As Ethisphere's annual Global Ethics Summit is just around the corner, and the Baylor Bears won their first NCAA National Basketball Championship ever, We are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eyes. Jay, what say you? I say congratulations to the Baylor Bears, and let's talk about all this week's compliance stories. Jay, we start off with a plethora of stories on Credit Suisse and how they are feeling the pain. Not the love, but the pain. They've made some uh, major foobars recently in the risk management area, uh, costing the bank uh, up to $10 billion in losses. Of course, one is the Archegos capital management failure, um, and the second is the Greensill capital failure. Both of these occur under the watch of Laura Warner, who uh, had the risk and compliance roles uh, combined last year, and she took over uh, both of those roles. She has now resigned to pursue other opportunities. Uh, As with, uh, it turns out there were seven or eight others at Credit Suisse who also resigned to pursue other opportunities. This, of course, is on the top of Credit Suisse exposure, exposure rather to the uh, not exposing itself, but exposure to Luck and Coffee, a Chinese firm that settled accounting fraud charges with the SEC. And Credit Suisse took a $450 million impairment on that puppy. So uh, you have to wonder about risk management, uh, particularly around the Archegos man- capital management when the staff. Uh, under Warner was overruled as they uh, recommended that the bank no longer extend credit and do business with that company because of its uh, practices or lack thereof. 
a big hit for Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse has been in the news quite a bit uh, for their nefarious acts. And this is just one more uh, reputational hit, but this is a real hit, Jay. $10 billion is, is real money, uh, probably even to the Rosen family. So uh, hard to believe, but uh, it really points up the, uh, and, and we cite to three articles, I should have, sorry, I should have said Tom Smith in the Financial Times, our friend Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and of course, the coolest guy in compliance. The coolest Matt guy Kelly. in compliance. And uh, all three really take a little bit different angles on this, but the bottom line is uh, you have to have competent risk management professionals. In fact, we're going to have another story from Dick Casson that touches on this and how and why the risk management process must be adhered to. Uh, Warner's overruling of her staff was incredibly inappropriate, and I think it shows her background in operations rather than as a risk management professional or a compliance professional. And Dick Casson really points up some of the problems. I think you're going to tell us a little bit that, about that in a later story. So a very bad uh, several weeks for Credit Suisse. Uh, several employees will probably be enjoying their time off as they pursue other opportunities in the financial world. Thanks, Tom. Next up, we've got a friend of the podcast, Jason Meyer, who sees a win for compliance and ethics. This comes to us from his blog on LinkedIn. Jason wants to declare a win for corporate compliance and ethics, but first he has to tie some threads together. Let's begin with the announcement by Major League Baseball that it's moving the 2021 All-Star Game from the Atlanta area in response to Georgia's adoption of substantial and discriminatory voter suppression laws. Jason thinks this will prove to be a major milestone in the current contest to counter a wave of anti-democratic activism in the United States posing behind the mantle of partisan politics. This is a win for corporate compliance and ethics, generally, he says, to the extent that we work to foster inclusivity, diversity, fairness, and government by the people. It's also a big win for speaking up a behavior we claim we value because the act of voting is a fundamental act of speaking up to support and improve one's community. Those of us in corporate ethics and compliance can actually take a victory lap and claim some of the credit regarding MLB's action and other corporate opposition to voter suppression laws. What we see in recent pro-democratic pro-inclusivity activity by multinational corporations that in the past they would have stayed out of the fray. For example, Major League Baseball, the National Basketball League, and even Microsoft. This is a direct result of the influence over the last two decades of corporate compliance and ethics. It's very easy and often accurate to be cynical about corporate do-gooding and to ascribe it to ulterior personal and profit motives. Sure, many codes of conduct have had no more impact on their organization than the weight of the paper on which they are printed. And yes, our training too often rings hollow and generic. Yes, we get bogged down in the process and we sometimes have our misses. But our steady 20-year drumbeat about doing the right thing, about living organizational core values, about avoiding discrimination and promoting open cultures has had a profound effect. What started in the C-suite as a nifty little way to avoid corporate liability for sexual harassment and to please some Eagle security regulators, yet this is a cause in which we have believed all along. 
after a generation has now planted itself in the minds of many corporate leaders and simply boxed many corporations in. It's not only the lies that stink, that sink, excuse me, it's not only the lies that sink in when you keep repeating them, talk long enough and it winds up changing your stride. Whether it was to save face, please their markets, or to actually stand up for core values, companies simply had to take action in the face of stark anti-democratic and discriminatory activity. But we started them down the road that led them to this destination. So along with Jason, let's take a lap and fly the W. Back to you, Tom. So Jay, uh, next up, we have a story from Jason Zuckerman. Uh, on his blog, the whistleblower uh, protection blog, that comments about a case that Francine McKenna has reported on extensively. It's a whistleblower case involving PwC and a gentleman named Mr. Bott. And PwC is now trying to claim that, although Bott claims he has SOX 404 whistleblower protection, he actually doesn't because he didn't prove his whistleblowing claims. So uh, Jason Zuckerman uh, picks it up from there and absolutely destroys the PwC argument by walking through not only the language of Sarbanes-Oxley 806, but also going into the court cases which have interpreted it since it was passed into law back in 2002. Uh, It is clear that uh, the section does not require uh, a whistleblower to prove the courage, rather the, the allegations. They have to make a good faith disclosure, and they are, <clears throat> if they have access to information to form an objectively reasonable belief, and they can be reason reasonable but even mistaken. So uh, Jason really, I think, goes uh, does a yeoman's job, certainly, and if you've uh, ever read his stuff, you know it's uniformly uh, top-notch from the whistleblower perspective. So uh, PwC is in a world of hurt and they're really grasping at straws. And Jason Zuckerman explains why uh, that grasp at straws is probably not going to work. So next up, Tom, uh, we have something again from a friend of the podcast, Karen Woody, and she's been named a Herndon Fellow. Peter Jettens writes the story in the columns. Washington and Lee Law Professor Karen Woody has been selected for a fellowship with the Herndon Foundation aimed at preparing diverse professionals for positions on corporate boards. Washington and Lee Law Professor Karen Woody has been selected for the prestigious fellowship with the Herndon Foundation. The program, the Herndon Directors Institute, is a partnership between the foundation and America's leading corporations and organizations to expand the participation of women and minorities in business leadership. Woody was one of 19 fellows selected to participate in the intensive six-month program. She is thrilled for the opportunity and has already gained so much insight and knowledge in just the first few weeks of the program, she said. She has already had a range of impressive speakers, including Ken Fraser, the current CEO of Merck, among others. She's very much looking forward to the opportunity that the fellowship will create. The program seeks to prepare fellows for positions as corporate directors by giving them hands-on experience in governance, fundamentals, stakeholder capitalism, financial and risk management, and market and brand dominance, among other topics. Wood joined the Washington and Lee Law faculty in 2019. Her scholarship focuses on security laws, financial regulation, and white-collar crime. Uh, 
She has published her work in a number of law journals, including the Maryland Law Review, Stanford Law Review Online, and the Journal of Corporation, Corporation Law, among others. Her work on conflict minerals is widely cited, and she has testified for the U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Committee regarding federal conflict minerals management. Prior to joining Washington and Lee, Woody was on the faculty of the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, and prior to entering academia, she practiced law in D.C. at Cadwallader, at Bracewell, and in Skadden Arps. In her practice, she advised corporate individual clients on issues related to white-collar crime and compliance issues with a particular focus on international corruption, securities and accounting fraud, and internal corporate investigations. Congratulations, Karen, on a great honor. Okay, uh, next up we have a story by a great friend of the compliance world, Sam Silverstein. If you don't know Sam Silverstein, you really should get to know him because Sam comes at compliance, uh, really actually ethics, from a really unique angle called accountability. Sam is the godfather of accountability, and he has given keynotes at ECI and Converse, uh, Converge 2020 around accountability. And this article in LinkedIn comes to us from his new book, No Matter What. And he talks about accountability as it's all of us, that it's all of us together. And for an organization, that means everyone in the organization is accountable from the very top down for the, from the boardroom to the shop floor. And then he takes it a step further and he says, well, what about outside the workplace? And it's all of us becomes a commitment to serve the larger world with people uh, which companies will consistently fulfill from the top down as part of a group. They can do volunteer work. They can clean up. They can uh, build houses and habitat for humanity. Uh, they can help rescue dogs. Uh, they can create Pawtastic, like my friends Michael and Melissa Novelli did. But it's about a commitment to serve the larger world. And, Jay, if you think about it in terms of the uh, corporate roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, Sam's thoughts really tie into that because there are numerous stakeholders uh, properly seen now. And one of those is the communities you serve. That could be a local community here in the United States. And it can also be an international community. So Sam really talks about accountability uh, as a way of thinking and as a way of living. We've linked, of course, to Sam's article. And take a look at his book. I've got several of his books, and they're just excellent for the compliance practitioner to think about how do you make your organization accountable? How do you improve culture? How do you maintain that culture? And how do you keep, keep it going forward? Next up, Tom, we asked the question, is it time for a national privacy law? Stephen Cavey writes about this on Corporate Compliance Insight. Countries and economic unions around the world are adopting national privacy laws. Rather than state-by-state -state privacy legislation, wouldn't it be easier to have one all-encompassing privacy law for the entire United States? If the current trend continues and more legislative bodies recognize the critical importance of consumer, consumer data protection, it's just a matter of time before all 50 states adopt their own privacy regulations. However, with no national privacy law in place, each state would have its own unique framework with different requirements and nuances on how the personal and sensitive data collected from individuals within their state may be collected, handled, and shared. 
This would likely require any organization doing business with customers nationally to understand and be ready to comply with 50 different sets of regulations. This would certainly be time-consuming, costly, and complicated. Furthermore, without a national law to unify regulations, the variations in state-by-state's compliance laws likely lead to inconsistent requirements for establishing legal consent and permitted use of the individual's data, further complicating, for example, the handling of children's data and guardian consent. Having multiple state data compliance laws will create complex barriers that make it difficult for businesses to appropriately respect the privacy rights of individuals. A national privacy law would create a unified standard for data privacy across the board, eliminating any discrepancies and streamlining the compliance process for organizations. A national law would also enable the federal government to set the tone at the top and abroad that the U.S. is more serious than ever about protecting data privacy. In addition, a correctly implemented U.S. privacy law that is trusted by the European Union would enable organizations to comply with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, the current gold standard for consumer data protection, privacy covering individuals in Europe. This would enable the U.S. businesses to more freely process and transfer EU customer data provided that they are in compliance with the equivalent U.S. national privacy law that has been deemed adequate and appropriate by the EU. The need for a national privacy law is clear, but it will not be an easy feat. The United States Congress must first acknowledge the urgency for a national privacy law and collectively decide to implement one. As general awareness around the importance of consumer data protection continues to proliferate, Congress must act decisively to enact a national privacy law, not only to help U.S. businesses compete globally, but to protect American citizens in consistent and fair manner. Tom? So, Jay, uh, did you ever read um, fairy tales to your kids? We did. And was Goldilocks one of those stories? No, the one we loved was something called Streganona, about this woman who had this magical pot of pasta. And then what happened was she went on a trip and her her pledged Anthony got the pasta to cook out of the pot and it took over the whole town. We loved it, Streganona. Well, we'll save that one for another show, Jay, <laughs> because today we're going to talk about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And I love when compliance lessons are wrapped up into tales that we're all aware of. And this comes from Jeff Kaplan. And Jeff is the, uh, of course, guru of uh, all things conflicts of interest. And he writes about Goldilocks compliance. And he's posted a piece for us in uh, CEP that talks about uh, saying you're going to have a zero tolerance policy can be great, but you must... um, if you're going to do that, you may need you may put more compliance in than's needed. And what he really talks about from the using Goldilocks as a starting point is, I think, what the DOJ says, which is assess your risks, manage your risk, and have risk management strategies appropriate to your organization. That includes budget. That includes resources. That includes training. That includes communication ongoing monitoring, third parties, and all of uh, all of the things that we know from a best practices compliance program. So I thought it was a great way to think about um, not having just good enough, but right for your organization. Of course, it all starts with a risk assessment, 
But if you assess your risks and determine that um, our international sales are all through our sales agents, then that's your risk. If it's third-party agents, that's your risk. So it's uh, a great way to think about it and um, a great way uh, to communicate using Goldilocks. Great, Tom. Next up, as you promised, we have the first of two from the FCPA blog. Uh, these, this is from Richard Casson, and he asks, question compliance officers should ask themselves before that big promotion. So as Tom told you about the woes of Credit Suisse, uh, their board of directors recently activated a tactical crisis committee <coughs> pardon me, and launched two investigations to be carried out by external parties. Brian Chin, the head of investment banking, will leave the bank at the end of April. Although Chin and Warner, who we spoke about before, aren't accused of anything, as this post isn't about who's to blame at Credit Suisse or what anyone there did or didn't do. But Warner's abrupt departure this week prompts a hypothetical question. If you're offered a senior risk management and compliance job, how should you react? Well, here's some background to consider. Warner, 54, became the chief risk officer at Credit Suisse Group in 2019, and in August 2020, she added the title of compliance to her portfolio. The dual Australian and American citizen joined the bank in 2002 and had been a member of the executive board since 2015. She started in research and became the CFO of investment banking in 2010 and the CEO of that unit in 2013. She then moved up into compliance and regulatory affairs. Until Tuesday, her resume showed an apparent string of successes, anyone who would celebrate a similar corporate path. But when a promotion or internal transfer means shifting from operations to compliance, there are questions you need to ask yourself. Can I function as a corporate gatekeeper? Will I have enough independence and skepticism to say no? And can I stand apart from the C-suite when I need to? When an insider is offered a gatekeeper job, their work life has to change. Corporate gatekeepers, if effective, aren't popular. They veto they typically the veto they typically hold over the C-suite, and their alignment with regulators' expectations sets them apart. Strong gatekeepers are natural targets for resentment and opposition. Some people can handle that. Others, unfortunately, can't. Something went wrong at Credit Suisse, ending in Tuesday's $4.7 billion hit. Did it have anything to do with Laura Warner's performance as a chief risk and compliance officer? Dick doesn't know. Still, anyone promoted out of operations and into risk management and compliance, especially to a top job, should ask themselves some hard questions, because asking before the promotion is so much better until waiting until after. Tom? Jay, next up, we've got a couple of different articles about protecting whistleblowers. Unfortunately, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names of the authors, uh, so I'm not going to butcher them on air. Uh, but one is in Risk and uh, uh, Compliance Platform Europe, and the other is in the FCPA blog. And the article in the FCPA, FCPA blog asks, when whistleblowing is used as a weapon, how do we protect the victims? So what really should you have in place? And um, you need to have a, a robust program. You need to have a protocol. You need to have the accused provided with notices of their rights and how to address bad faith allegations. 
You need to have definitions of who can investigate and how to investigate. How will discipline be handled? And is there a confidentiality or non-disclosure? And what about data privacy rights? Jay, it really speaks to me to the larger issue that the Department of Justice talked about last year in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs around the role of the CCO in institutional justice and institutional fairness. Justice and fairness mandate that if someone's wrongly accused, that they be protected as well. In addition to, excuse me, the whistleblower or reporter. So uh, I think it's a good lesson to learn. Uh, the second case we uh, highlight is uh, goes into the facts of the EU case that this uh, FCPA blog article is based upon by an author whose name I can't pronounce. So uh, check out those two articles because it will give you a sense of the full measure of what you need to incorporate into your whistleblower response. Yes, you do have to protect the whistleblower, but sometimes you have to protect those who are accused uh, because oftentimes uh, whistleblowing can be used as a weapon. Jay? Tom, as promised in the second of two, the FCPA blog asked the question, as international anti-bribery enforcement evolves, is the U.S. losing its place? And this article is written by Robert Clark. Anti-corruption enforcement is a slow-moving vehicle. Investigations into business bribery allegations can sometimes take years to resolve, even with the application of significant agency resources. The long-haul nature of enforcement is reflected in the 2020 Global Enforcement Report published by Trace last month. Tracking the number of open transactional bribery investigations and completed enforcement actions across jurisdictions and industries, the report's figures change incrementally from year to year. For example, while the U.S. has always been the leader in historical anti-bribery enforcement and investigation, its share of global enforcement actions, 66%, is now much larger, larger than its share of global open investigations, 39%. This may be an early indication that as more countries build up capacity and enforce their laws against foreign bribery, there will over time be a shift away from the central role that U.S. agencies have played by virtue of FCPA's relative antiquity. The 2020 Global Enforcement Report also found that while the extractive industries remain the most actively prosecuted, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, there is now a divergence in the second most investigated industry. Outside of the U.S., engineering and construction had the most open investigations. Still, U.S. agencies are currently devoting more attention to the financial sector, historically not among the industries with the heaviest enforcement. The United States has also seen far fewer enforcement actions with respect to engineering and construction, as, as more than the rest, less, less than the rest of the world, with considerably greater focus on aerospace defense and healthcare. This appears to reflect the historical roots of the FCPA in the defense sector, uh, and especially highlighted by the bribery during the 1970s, and heightened scrutiny of the healthcare sector over the past two decades. But the most important finding of the report may be precisely how little has changed. While U.S. agencies concluded fewer enforcement actions in 2020 than in the previous year, 
12 compared to 17. It's important to consider the context both of the pandemic and a president who actively disparaged and denounced the FCPA. Meanwhile, outside the U.S., the number of foreign bribery enforcement actions held steady at six. Compliance officers should understand that the global enforcement apparatus has continued to function under trying conditions. The prospect of an official investigation remains a predominant deterrent of corrupt business activity and the strongest driver of corporate compliance programs. As budgets stay tight, global anti-bribery enforcement sustained progress may be the most effective justification for maintaining an organization's financial commitment to ethical practices. With increased global capacity building and cross-border cooperation, we can expect to see more jurisdictions becoming increasingly involved and exposing and punishing corrupt behavior. While the shift toward a more multilateral enforcement regime may be slow, the business community has strategic interest in keeping itself current. Back to you, Tom. Jay, I am now pleased to bring on our first live stream guest. Kevin, uh, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jay. Can you hear me okay? Perfect. Sounds great. So, okay. ladies and gentlemen, we have Kevin McCormick. Kevin is with Ethosphere, and he's here as our special guest today to tell us about the 2021 Ethosphere Global Ethics Summit, which will be occurring next week, uh, virtually, of course. So, Kevin, could you describe what the GES is and maybe give us uh, some teasers of some of the highlights? I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. And uh, thank you for identifying me as a special guest. That's very kind. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, we are hosting our Global Ethics Summit, which has always been Ethosphere's flagship event uh, for the very first time virtually taking place April 13th through the 15th. So that's Tuesday through Thursday next week. We'll start at about 10 a.m. Eastern time, go till three o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time. It's action packed. Um, we have 39 different sessions that's inclusive of both a mix of main stage kind of virtual plenary sessions, as well as a mixture of breakout sessions. And those breakout sessions also include a new feature this year, which we're calling company showcases, which is an opportunity for distinct organizations to share some really innovative developments in the way they've transformed their compliance strategy and their culture. So we're excited about that. Just to put it in perspective, you know, we had to take a year off last year and regrettably canceled the summit. Um, the most sessions we've ever done at a traditional in-person event is, I think, 24. So 39 was a pretty ambitious endeavor for us to plan. And I feel like we've crammed, with all the planning, we've crammed about, I think, a year's worth of planning into about four months. So it's been ambitious. Um, and I think, you know, are we trying to make up for lost time and opportunity uh, from last year? I think uh, the answer is sure. But I think there's a real legitimate thirst for the information uh, to reconnect, even if virtually. Um, some of these issues are driven by our Business Ethics Leadership Alliance. I'm the executive director for our Bella community. They have driven a lot of the planning and the topical appetite for this session. We also have worked with the Summit Advisory Board that has provided their insights and their input on the direction we should go. And in many ways, I think it's going to be one of our more, um, it's digitally enhanced, but can be one of our more human, have a more human feel to it because almost everybody is joining us from their own habitat, much like you gentlemen are today, and just having very raw, frank conversations about the nature of work and how they, what they've had to endure to try to progress their compliance and ethics programs. 
Kevin, could you maybe tease some of the uh, keynotes which yeah. uh, appear next week? Yeah, I'm 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 really tough at uh, I'm hard on myself for trying to call out favorites, but I'll give you a few a few give you a few morsels. Uh, we always have a nice collection of of CEOs that do participate and join us. We are featuring uh, on one keynote that's going to talk about long term strategy and I think disruption in the supply chain. We have the CEOs from Flex and the CEO from Premier, and that's going to be moderated by um, the new chair for Hush Blackwell, Catherine Hannaway. We're excited about that. We've got another plenary session, I think, taking place day three, that's going to, you know, Zoom has become kind of a, a, a part of the global vernacular, and we have the chief operating officer from Zoom, uh, Upper Nabawa, to talk to us about kind of a business survival story and a way to kind of preserve the culture through so much change. Um, another great couple of keynotes we have, we're kicking off the summit with uh, the CEO from the Harris Bowl, John Gersima, who um, outside of my colleague, Erica Salmon-Byrne, probably does one of the best job of, of explaining data and research. It's just going to be a, a really interesting conversation to set the stage for us all. And Erica is going to deliver uh, a, a keynote on culture. We have a conversation with our, our colleagues and partners over at Disability In and advancing ethics and company performance through disability inclusion. Equity and social justice is going to take center stage this year as well. And we have the CEOs from AARP, uh, the CEO from BF Corporation, and that is going to be led. That conversation will be led by the chief compliance officer and senior executive vice president for AT&T, David Huntley, who also happens to be the chair of our advisory council on equity and social justice. Those are just a few highlights for you. I could speak on and on about it. Uh, one of the things that's intrigued me the most is there's going to be uh, worked into and inter intertwined in the conferences, uh, the world's most ethical company awards, designated award winners, and really some cutting edge uh, techniques and strategies for compliance. Once again, could you maybe tease one or two that have intrigued you? Uh, yeah, I'll tease. And so, so the audience can can get a better understanding. We have always treated our world's most ethical companies gala and the global ethics summit as two independent events. Normally, they'd be taking place during the same week in New York City, right across the street from one another. This year, we have the virtual summit. Next week, the following week, we are doing a virtual. Um, world's most ethical companies gala. So that takes on a little bit different format, but we're excited about that. During the summit, I think you're going to hear a lot about innovation and a few things that I think are very unique to the conversation this year is one, I think there's a greater emphasis on data analytics. I think in part because companies are doing interesting work to on their digital journey to enhance their compliance and ethics programs. I think driven by the, the, the understanding that they need to get there, and also because we know the DOJ guidance has placed a lot of emphasis on increased data analytics and the effectiveness of data. Um, you know, for the very first time, and I think given all the pressure and, and the experiences over the past 12 months, we're introducing conversations like uh, employee well-being and mental health. That'll be a focus of one of the breakout conversations, not just about keeping the culture preserved, but also I think it's important for compliance and ethics leaders to have a conversation about what can they do for themselves? What can they do for their people? So that's another interesting angle that I think is going to be part of uh, the conversation. We've got a lot of response. My colleague, Sean Friedland, who I think you know, introduced a little bit of a gamification component to this to have people vote on topics. One of the favorite topics was that hybrid, that hybrid nature of work and culture. And I think in just about every dimension of those conversations, we're going to hear from, from very seasoned people about how that hybrid work experience has changed the way they think about work, think about their people, and think about the ways they, they handle their compliance and ethics responsibilities.
Kevin, it sounds like it's going to be an incredible event. Um, you had a lot of info that you just threw against everyone. Is there one central uh, URL that we can direct the listeners to to find out about everything? Yeah, there is. And I'll, I'll have my note just so I don't get my own URL wrong. Correct. Right. But the the URL to go to is globalethicssummit.ethosphere.com. And that's where all the information is. The listing of the 125 speakers that we have that are confirmed for the summit, which is the most we've ever had, all the session breakdowns, a lot of the features that will be happening. We've got a, we've got over 50 hours of content, not just live, but also on demand. It's, it's kind of the biggest venture for us. And I think actually, and this was shared before, Tom, but we try to make it, make it simple for your audience we have a discount code that people can use for individual registrations through the Global Ethics Summit website. That we made it simple. Tom Fox 15, 15% discount, if that sounds okay to you. Tom Fox 15. Sounds good to me. Okay. Thanks for allowing us to do that. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on and te- teasing a little bit for us on the GES. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, Also, thank you for being our first live stream guest on This Week in FCPA. Uh, We actually made the tech work. And since you're now uh, a seasoned veteran, perhaps we could call upon you uh, in the future to maybe come back and talk about Baylor or some of your other initiatives. I would love to do that. I'd love to talk about baseball with you, too. That would be fine as well. All right. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Tom. Be well. Well. We actually made it work, Jay. How about that? I had complete Um, faith in you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, now to podcasts and some events. Uh, uh, For our listeners, we'll link to the uh, not only Ethosphere GES site, but uh, I've got the discount code for you as well. But also, um, Jay, you colleagues had a very interesting podcast posted this week on integrity through compliance. Could you tell us about that? Love to. So this is a a new series that we started earlier in the year. And on episode six of Integrity Through Compliance, a couple of our managing directors, Don Stern and Eric Feldman, got together with the former DAG, Rod Rosenstein, for a two-part series taking a look at the past, the present, and the future of compliance and independent monitoring. So it was really interesting to get Rod's perspective as being the DAG what the intention was behind putting together all the guidance on compliance. And in two weeks, the trio would be back to talk about how they see monitoring moving forward. So it was real fascinating exploration. Okay. Uh, We've also uh, have another podcast series running on the Compliance Podcast Network. We should say that in addition to running your series on the affiliated monitors, podcast. Uh, It's also, of course, on the Compliance Podcast Network. But uh, in a little more uh, lighter vein, Megan Doherty and I are doing a weekly wrap-up of all things the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So we're celebrating this series, uh, live streaming or or, or streaming rather on Disney+. And uh, if you don't know Megan Doherty, uh, check her out. You're going to love her. She's my crazy crazy Canadian producer of many of my podcasts, and she is a lover of all things uh, MCU. So we're having a ton of fun on that series. Uh, We did uh, episodes one and two together, and we just posted episode three this week. We'll be back uh, with episode four. Uh, As I told Megan, 
it's been a rare television show that got me uh, to watch TV on a Friday night, and it drops on Friday, and I'm certainly uh, bunkered in to watch uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. What about in the Rosen household? Uh, we are we are fans of uh, Bucky, and uh, it's not quite as uh, uh, groundbreaking as WandaVision, but uh, it still occupies a, a, a place in the Rosen family heart. And one of my daughters has been known to stay up to 12.01 a.m. Friday morning, uh, Pacific time to watch the new episodes drop. So we've been doing that. Um, talking about new episodes dropping, it's a new month, April. So who do we have appearing on the compliance life? Jay, this month we have Jonathan Kellerman. And Jonathan's uh, currently a partner at Stone Turn. He's a former CCO at Allergan. But his journey to compliance was, uh, was a little bit different. And he comes from a family of doctors and had uh, started his undergrad career in uh, pre-med and got a pre-med degree and then decided he really wanted to practice medicine, but he wanted to go into the business side of healthcare. So he went into the consulting world, um, starting out with Coopers and Librand, then went to, when it merged with PwC, and he developed some very innovative strategies for the compliance uh, function in healthcare, in life sciences, and uh, pharmaceutical companies. Then he moved to Allergan uh, to the CCO role, and he was also on the executive leadership team. And so he talks about uh, all of that throughout the series. And in this uh, first episode, we talk about his uh, academic background, professional, early professional background, and how he was always interested in the uh, really healthcare consulting into the compliance space. It's it's a unique story, and it's unique uh, for this episode, but. Uh, he gets to the CCO chair, and it's uh, just fascinating. So uh, check out The Compliance Life on the Compliance Podcast Network. This month's guest, Jonathan Kellerman, partner at Stone Turn. So next up, uh, Corporate Compliance Insight has released a new ebook called The FCPA Year in Review, and it's written by our own compliance evangelist, Tom Fox. Uh, in the show notes, there's a link to download it. And best of all, how much is it, Tom? It's available at no charge, Jay. So it's free? Yes. So somebody would have to be absolutely crazy not to go to that link and download the book from CCI. You know, I'm not sure I could have said it better myself. So uh, uh, let's plug one last time. Um, As you heard earlier in the podcast, 2021's Global Ethics Summit will be held virtually next week from the 13th to 15th. And as Kevin said, listeners to the podcast will receive a 15% discount to Ethisphere's Global Ethics Summit. For more information and registration, there's a link. And to make it easy, because we love to make it easy for all our listeners, the code is TOMFOX15. Tom, uh, another webinar to tell us about? Right. K2 uh, Integrity's Financial Crimes Compliance Professionals will have a webinar on Thursday, April 22 at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on uh, Dolphin, which is a K2 integrity platform uh, for financial institutions and fighting financial crimes. It's a discussion on the impact of ongoing developments in the financial integrity community. It's a great resource. K2 integrity is obviously a leader uh, in this part of compliance. And Jay, if I could uh, one more time plug the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition. It's available for pre-sale. Uh, you really should get it on a pre-sale basis because you can get a discount and 
with, once again, our attempted ease, uh, the code for that discount is FOX25, a 25% discount. We have linked to the site, uh, on my publisher's site, LexisNexis. So I'm greatly looking forward uh, to that book coming out. But uh, order it on presale and get a discount, Jay. Why not? So as we normally close the show off and let you know, Tom is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfox.com, rather, at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 247 for the week ending April 9th, 2021, the GES edition. We thank you for either watching our live stream on LinkedIn or joining us tomorrow via podcast. We hope you have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week about this week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCP. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay or Jay Rosen or FellowMonitors.com or reach me at tfox at tfoxmonitors.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week when we take up some of the week's compliance and ethics stories about upcoming webinars and key podcasts from the Compliance Podcast Network. Which for listening. Please join us on our live stream on the Q&A Monday or Friday. Those are on LinkedIn and Facebook, 4 p.m. Central every Thursday. And again, please listen to the Q&A. We'll be with you again next week. Thanks again for This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.